Senator Warren, you would be the oldest president ever inaugurated. I'd like you to weigh in as well. Uh, I'd also be the youngest woman ever inaugurated. <laughs> Sorry, that was just the line of the night. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. As if we have not had enough in-your-face Trump-era politics in recent days, weeks, months, and arguably years, Wednesday's dramatic debate and vote by the U.S. House in favor of articles of impeachment against the United uh, President of the United States was followed by Thursday's dramatic, if much livelier, debate by seven candidates running for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, allowing us to bring you once again more special coverage here on the broadcast of Election 2020. The uh, last Democratic debate of the year and the last one to take place before ballots actually begin to go out to actual voters in just a few days. With vote-by-mail ballots heading out to a number of states before the end of the year and then to dozens of Super Tuesday states within just about three weeks thereafter, The uh, final forum of the year was held at Loyola Marymount University out here in Los Angeles on Wednesday night. The participants selected based on DNC criteria included former Vice President Joe Biden, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, billionaire businessman Tom Steyer, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and entrepreneur Andrew Yang. And since it is the last debate before at least some voting actually starts, though there will be another debate uh, in mid-January before the Iowa caucuses on February 3, uh, and then the first in the nation, New Hampshire primary on February 11, followed quickly by the Nevada caucus, the South Carolina primary, and then Super Tuesday, 
With more than a dozen states voting, including California, Texas, and many others, all one week after another following the Iowa kickoff, I I think I should note here the other major-ish candidates who did not make the cut on Wednesday night since... Many people will, yes, be able to vote for them, uh, even uh, though they weren't on the debate stage on Thursday night. That list includes Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, New York City, uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro, former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. Is he still in this? Yeah, apparently so. Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Is she still a Democrat? Yeah, apparently so. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick and author Marianne Williamson. The debate on Wednesday night in L.A. was sponsored by PBS and Politico, and it was moderated by PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff, Amna Nawaz, Yamish Alcindor, and Politico's Tim Alberta, who I think is uh, clearly a Canadian by both name and behavior, based on what I saw on uh, on Wednesday night, uh, Thursday night. Uh, to be included on um, the uh, Thursday night stage, the DNC determined that candidates needed to, ha- to have at least 4% in at least four national or early state polls or 6% in two early state polls. Candidates had to also receive donations from at least 200,000 unique donors with a minimum of 800 from at least 20 different states. Got all of that? Okay, good. Joining us to make sense of whatever we saw or that you didn't on um, Thursday night, of course, as ever, our own Desi Doyen, who was up all night as usual, <laughs> plowing through audio clips, looking forward to a holiday break at this point, no doubt. It's fun when everything happens all at once. Isn't it, though? That's your life now. Uh, also joining us is, uh, 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 oh, <laughs> we may we may as well call her our guest host, our, our co-host at this point. Uh, she's been with us so frequently, helping us to navigate impeachment hearings. The great Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Hullabaloo and the well-deserved winner of the coveted Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Oh, Heather, welcome back. Uh, are, are you sad that there will probably be no impeachment hearings or presidential debates for a good week or two after I'm, today? I'm devastated. I thought, what will yeah, I do? I, I don't know, know how, how to spend my time now without eat, that. I mean, you know. sleep. Take what? a walk. You can eat, sleep, take a walk. What are these a, things you speak I know, of? I don't do those I things. Know, <laughs> yeah, I know you don't. Another returning champion for us today is our friend and the no less great David Ferris, always uh, an insightful contributor at The Week, theweek.com. He's associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He's also author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, which should be on all of your Christmas lists. Welcome back, Mr. Ferris. Has winter set uh, set in out there yet in Chicagoland? Oh, winter set in in like October. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay, so uh, stay warm, my friend. Before we get to the debate, uh, a couple of uh, quick mop-up points I want to hit from the amazing uh, continuing fights in the uh, in the wake of the two articles of impeachment adopted against Donald John Trump just one day before Thursday's Democratic presidential debate. 
Heather, we talked about it a, a little bit during Wednesday's House debate show uh, while while the uh, impeachment debate was going on. But almost immediately after the votes for impeachment were cast, it became clear that, yes, Democrats were indeed planning on holding up sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Your thoughts today on the uh, on the showdown that continues right now between Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats withholding articles until they can get some assurance of a fair-ish trial uh, with witnesses and documents, withholding those uh, articles from the Senate and its majority leader, Mitch McConnell, who has already said out loud that he will not be an impartial juror, despite the Constitution politely requesting otherwise. Well, I think the the main reason I think that Pelosi did this, that, you know, I think she's sincere in her sort of desire that they at least put together some sort of format before she uh, sends them over. But mainly it's so that uh, everybody can, you know, people are going home for Christmas, people mm-hmm. are breaking, there's Christmas parties, people are talking, and they're just going to have to sit on this impeachment right now. <laughs> and that is going to be the only thing that uh, people are talking about, and she's going to let that kind of percolate a little bit over the holidays. But I also think there are a couple of other things going on here. And, and one is that, you know, she does have leverage here. Um, I don't know whether, how powerful it is, but it's something. And it is the fact that polling has come out, which shows that the vast majority of, Ameri- of the American people, mm-hmm. Republican, Democrat, and Independent, believe that they should call witnesses for this trial. Yeah. And that is what they want to mm-hmm. do. So she's got some... She's got some good backing and an unusual sort of bipartisan backing that you just don't see very often. So I think she wants to play that out and see how that goes. And there's also the fact, and I think we did talk about this the other day, there's a lot of Ukraine stuff that's that's kind of percolating, you know, that's mm-hmm. rising up to the surface here with, you know, Rudy out there babbling like a maniac and committing, <laughs> admitting to the crimes he's committed, yeah. and this stuff about, you know, money coming through from Russia to mm-hmm. pay his associates while he isn't being paid, et cetera, et cetera. It all looks very dicey. And then you've got this report that just came out in the Washington Post about the fact that Trump's gone around telling everybody that the reason he believes Ukraine did it is because, you know, Putin told him. Putin told and, him directly, yeah. And a yeah. whole lot of people in the administration, you know, all of whom are cowards because they won't, you know, allow their names to be used. But nonetheless, I assume they're saying what they really think, whoever these people are. Is that Trump, the reason, part of the reason Trump has kept these meetings private with Putin is to talk about stuff like yeah. this, which does not surprise me since... That weird, you know, the weird stinky yeah. press conference when he came out and they said, well, did you talk about the election interference? The first thing he said, st- did was start babbling about as, the server. As soon so. as, as, soon as uh, this entire scheme became clear that he was going to try to uh, blame Ukraine for what happened in 2016, I even said to Desi, I, I thought, I'll bet. Putin told him this directly in those private meetings. Uh, David Ferris, uh, you know, I, I can't avoid my... Um, my uh, sort of a Charlie Brown and, and Lucy with the football feeling here. So I'm trying to not get too impressed with the Democrats and their momentary showing of some backbone here. Because what I really want to say is, well, how are Democrats going to finally back down, uh, David? But in the spirit of the season, I'm generous. I'll ask, uh, how does this unprecedented showdown finally end, David Ferris? Well, first of all, don't, definitely don't be too generous, because in this, at the same time this is all going on, we passed a, a ridiculous defense uh, uh, appropriations bill, mm-hmm. and, and Democrats agreed to the, to the USMCA. So <laughs> I would love to have seen them not do any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think this is one of those cases where 
you know, the Constitution is a, a brief, ambiguous document. Um, it doesn't say how articles of, of impeachment are to be transmitted to the Senate. And so finally, it makes my heart sing. Uh, you have Democrats playing a little bit of constitutional hardball here yeah. by, by holding up the articles of impeachment uh, in exchange for, you know, certain assurances about how the Senate trial will go. I think underneath of that, um, just to build on what Heather was saying, I, I think that there's some belief in the, in the Democratic caucus and that, that there's more to come from the scandal. Um, and that sort of the longer that they sit on this, the better it will be for them, because if we have the trial in the Senate and it's all over, and then we discover all of this other incriminating or damning evidence, there's not much that, you know, they're not going to do this again about Ukraine. So I think there's both a hardball calculus um, in, in terms of uh, in terms of getting Mitch McConnell to bend um, on, on, some of, uh, on some of the ways that the trial will work. Um, and then there's just sort of like, you know, you're holding the door open on the subway car for 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 Ukraine to come in. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we don't want to leave the station without any uh, information that would be valuable. Uh, but to I, th- us I think the prosecuting this case. I, I I think the question though is, you know, can they stick to their guns, or do they again, like Lucy with the football, just you know, fold when they're given the the, the slightest anything? Uh, from Mitch McConnell in the Senate, or, you know, if they feel that, uh, oh, public opinion is turning against us for not turning it over, we better go ahead and do that. And I guess nobody really knows how this is going to play out. I'm just predicting somehow the Dems will roll over. But for now, David, you're right. They are playing hardball, uh, even uh, playing dirty, as uh, fighting dirty, as, as the title of your book suggests, and I'm happy to see that. Before we get to the debate proper, by the way, uh, I made my own opinions known about Tulsi Gabbard and her vote of present on our previous broadcast. Uh, I think it was a cowardly vote and, frankly, disqualifying for running for the presidency. Uh, frankly, for any party, at least, you know, the three Democrats who voted against impeachment, at least they stood up for their beliefs, whether I agree with them or not. So I have a harder time faulting them. Uh, either of you two want to uh, d- take a punch at uh, Tulsi Gabbard or at me to tell me I'm wrong about all of that? Well, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. You're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what Tulsi Gabbard's game is. It's very obscure and strange. And um, <laughs> basically, you know, I, I mean, obviously she's trying to set herself apart from virtually everybody, in Democrat, Republican, you know, stand out there. Remember, she's from Hawaii, and uh, I don't think she's going to run again. I understand she has uh, her sights set on the governorship of Hawaii. Hawaii is one of the bluest states in the country, if not the bluest state. Uh, she is not going to become governor of Hawaii. Yeah, I was going to say, how does Failing that... to vote <laughs> for impeachment against Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't understand how that would help uh, to become a Democratic governor of Hawaii. All right, well, I, I just, yeah, uh, go ahead, Dave. I just don't think that she has a future in democratic politics, right? So that makes you wonder what it is exactly that she's positioning herself for, whether that's some sort of elaborate media gig or uh, something like that. I I don't know, but I just don't know what the constituency is for a present vote (laughs) on impeachment. It just doesn't seem like it's going to turn anybody's head. Uh, No, and it didn't, and her explanation did not make much sense. But never mind her. She wasn't in the debate on uh, Thursday night, so we can uh, move beyond that. So first, by way of transparency, uh, as we always try to do on these shows, I, I don't believe that either of you are working for or with any of the campaigns, but I am curious. Ballots will be sent out in just a few weeks to folks like uh, Digby 
and me and Desi out here in California for the March 3 primary, uh, and David for you in Illinois for the state's uh, March 17 primary. Uh, so have, have you decided yet who you are going to vote for? You don't have to say who. I'm just wondering if you've yet decided. Uh, I have decided, yes. Oh. And uh, I can tell you who it, who it is oh. uh, with the caveat yeah. that I am more than you know, willing to... I'm not so invested in my candidate that I will be unwilling or unhappy about um, enthusiastically supporting whoever it is that you know, will go up against Donald so, Trump. So you have decided. Um, do you want to say who it is? Yeah, it's Elizabeth Warren. Okay. Uh, she's she's been my candidate for for years. I have I've met her. I know her. She I interviewed her a couple of times and uh, I think she's terrific and I think she would make the best president. Um mm-hmm. having said that, you know, the rest of them for the most I have some that I like better than others, but um I will live with it whatever it is. So, uh, David, uh, Heather obviously in the bag, and nothing will change her for Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> uh, how about you, Dave, David? Uh, who, who are you in the bag uh, for? Yeah. So I've described myself since uh, since the spring as Lean Warren. Yeah. Um, and so if the election were, you know, if the Illinois primary were today, I would vote for Elizabeth Warren. I will say that I am open to changing my mind in the interim and to keeping an open mind about some of the other candidates, particularly as we see some more polling roll in about what might what might happen in the general election, I wouldn't say that I'm 100% committed. <laughs> David, was there anybody on that stage uh, on Thursday night at Loyal Marymount uh, who you could not vote for in a general election next year if they became the, the, the nominee? And yes, I'm including Tom Steyer in that question. No, I would definitely vote for all of them. I mean, they would all be a vast and enormous improvement over um, what, what the entity in the White House right now. Um, I would vote for some of them with much less enthusiasm <laughs> mm-hmm. than, than others, but I would absolutely turn out for all seven of those people. Yeah, Heather, anyone you felt should have been on the stage uh, on Thursday night but wasn't? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's just strange that people like Steyer and, and Yang make uh-huh. it into this into the debates while somebody like Cory Booker or Julian Castro, both of whom have different constituencies in the party and... Uh-huh. Who, in my view, have kind of they bring a different different worldview, different philosophy. You know, they made these rules based upon polling and money, and I guess that's you know that's uh-huh. as good as anything. You have to make a decision about something, but it does show that something like you know the people like Steyer and Yang who have managed to, in their own way, and I'm not criticizing them as people are saying they're immoral or unethical, but they have gamed the system to a certain extent hmm. to get where they are. So I think that, you know, it just shows that no, no way, that it's very difficult to put together some kind of a system that will be ultimately fair. So I would have enjoyed hearing from them. Uh, they're, they're both still running, Castro and, and, and Booker, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, I would have enjoyed hearing from uh, them. Andrew, but to be fair, I don't think Andrew Yang has actually gamed the system, has he? It seems like he has done exactly what you're supposed to do with the system. No? I don't know. I mean, Steyer has put in $50 million. Yes, he has gamed the system. But, I mean, I think uh, Yang has, whether you like him or not, and and frankly, I was going to say, I kind of like hearing him in the the debates. He has a lot of fresh ideas uh, that that nobody else seems to have, a fresh perspective. Why am I wrong about that, David? I mean, I I don't think you're wrong. I I mean, I think that he's the kind of, he's, he's a sort of like this niche candidate where, uh, he sometimes says things that you have to Google immediately afterwards, and I think that's interesting. You know, like right. during the debate, I was like, "What is a what is a thorium reactor?" I've never heard of that before. <laughs> um, so, in that sense, he's a sort of I find him 
I, I guess in the early debates, I find him kind of kind of grating, and now I'm like he's like uh, you know he's like a jester or something. I, I, I don't know. I, like he's not a serious candidate. A clown. You're calling him um, a clown. But he is an interesting person. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I okay. guess so. Right. Um, I, I I think that he he brings. He, he's somebody that, that looks at the same issues at the, as the rest of the candidates, mm-hmm. and, he, and, he, and he says something completely different. And so I think there's some value in that, I guess, but I agree with Heather. Um, I'd rather see Booker and Castro up there. I'd also rather see Harris up there um, in, in the sense that the, these are people that I think could actually win a general election, if they could win the Democratic primary, whereas I think Yang is, is out there to promote this one idea, which I think he's done very well. And I actually sort of appreciate the, the role that he's played in, in popularizing the idea of a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with elitists David Ferris <laughs> and Heather Digby-Parton <laughs> about Thursday night's uh, debate, special coverage here on the broadcast. And I got to say, you know, after so many weeks in sort of the upside-down, bizarro world of impeachment land, where at least half the time it's filled with insane conspiracy theories and lies, and the other half is filled with unimaginable crimes and a, a, abuse of power by the President of the United States, I found it uh, just so refreshing to actually hear a three-hour discussion of actual facts and stuff by non-crazy people for a change, it was like, I, I don't know, breath of fresh air. It was just totally different on uh, on watching that debate on Thursday night than so many weeks before it. I was reminded that maybe there is something uh, resembling normal beyond all of this. But maybe I'm just dreaming and it's that whole Charlie Brown and the football thing again. Um, (laughs) David, I know you recently wrote about this. Uh, Why has Elizabeth Warren lost steam in recent weeks, at least prior to the debate uh, on Thursday? And uh, did that debate help her uh, get any of that steam back? Well, I think that Elizabeth Warren is in this unique position in the primary where she's the she's the only candidate in the race who's taking fire from the from the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I guess after her her rise to the I guess the sort of co front runner status in September with Biden, she she couldn't get to the left of Sanders, and so she was still drawing fire in terms of her her Medicare for all proposal and her phase in proposal, and she was still drawing very serious fire from the left. Um, at the same time as she she became the chief target of the of the moderates in the race, and so I think that combination of uh, sort of taking on water from both sides of the ideological spectrum really sapped the momentum that she had and, and took her yeah. down a peg. Now, she's still, you know, in second or third place in, in most polls. I think she's still well-positioned to, to make a leap uh, in terms of winning some of the early primary states. But she has some work to do, and I, I'm not sure. Uh, she, had, she had that one great moment um, where she said yes. she'd be the, you know... <laughs> be the youngest female the youngest president woman. ever inaugurated, yeah. yes. Right. That, that oh, brought okay. down the house. That was a great moment. But I think other yeah. than that... Um, I don't think that she necessarily had any of the other sort of marquee moments of the night. And so in that sense, I think that she's, I don't think she's going to lose support after last night, but I don't think it did much for her. And and yeah, actually, I do think that uh, comment goes into the annals of great, all-time great debate (laughs) uh, answers, uh, by the way. Uh, But David, uh, similarly, I guess, uh, and you're in Illinois, so you're a bit closer out there uh, than, you know, us West Coast elitists here in L.A., but why is uh, Pete Buttigieg (laughs) doing so well in Iowa where he now appears to be the front runner, uh, what what do they see in Iowa uh, that those in you know sort of the national polling, um, not just the elitist West Coasters, but uh, the rest of us don't seem to see? They seem to love Mayor Pete in Iowa. I'm not altogether clear why. Are you? 
No, I'm not sure that anybody is super clear why about this. I mean, I, you know, I think obviously Iowa and New Hampshire are, are overwhelmingly white states um, that, that are not necessarily representative of the rest of the primary electorate. And I think we should always keep that in mind when we see that early state polling and Buttigieg is doing so much better in Iowa and New Hampshire than he does in the rest of the country. Um, I, you know, I think there's a certain um, sort of precocious earnestness to Buttigieg that might, that might appeal to people out here. Um, and, you know, I live in Chicago, so I don't mm-hmm. want to pretend that I'm, like, uh, you know, representative of the heartland right. or anything, right? Um, but, uh, but I think that he has a certain appeal to voters who, who are turned off by partisanship. You know, and if you, if you listen to Buttigieg carefully, um, he does a lot of talking about, you know, how Washington politicians do this and that. Um, he talks about how we need to move beyond the divisions and get things done. Um, and I think that as much as uh, I think those of us that are plugged into Twitter um, don't find that kind of rhetoric appealing, um, I do think there's a certain segment of the primary electorate um, that would love to get things that they want to see happen in public policy, have those things enacted without any of the bitterness that characterizes our mm. politics. And for them, Buttigieg is, is the kind of person who they think, you know, he's saying the right things, he's saying it in the right tone. And they're like, okay, you know, I like that nice young man. I mean, his, his appeal is largely it's, to older Americans. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, it's very yeah. yeah to older Americans and uh, younger Americans. Uh, he seems to get be getting no traction from, even though he is younger. Uh, he is the youngest American in the thing, and all the younger Americans are going for the older candidates. Very strange. <laughs> and I don't uh, anyway. I I don't uh, I have trouble uh, trusting him. I don't distrust him. I just don't trust him. I would love to see him tested as you know. Secretary of Transportation or something for a while uh, before we put someone who uh, doesn't really have national experience into the job once again. Uh, Heather uh, Barton, I I also I like Joe Biden. I think he's a nice guy. I think it was hands down his best debate um, where he did not seem as frail as he has in past debates. Uh, but I did feel he was yelling at me a lot, and I think that seems to be a, a strategy to show that he's a tough guy who can stand up to Donald Trump. He was rewarded for it recently when he yelled at that guy at a campaign event. Uh, is being uh, a louder, tougher guy than Trump now the way to beat Donald Trump? And, and by the way, he was not the only one doing it, uh, yelling and, and acting like a tough guy, I felt. Well, I mean, I, th- I think if you, you know, the two front runners are both old guys who are yelling all the time. I mean, that just seems to be. And but and so is Donald Trump. So, I don't know. Klobuchar, somehow, Klobuchar wait, was doing a lot of yelling, too. Yeah, I just want to yeah, toss that yeah, in there. Yes, she okay. was. But let's just, let's just be honest. When okay. it comes to yelling, nobody can, can really compete with, with Bernie Sanders uh, or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, the, those three guys really know how to deliver on But it's not a tough guy. Joe Biden, it, there's like a difference between uh, yelling the way Bernie does and Joe, you know, trying to seem like tough guys. It's, it's like, I'm going to out-tough guy Donald Trump, and I wonder if that's the way to beat Donald Trump. I'm not sure that it is. Uh, I have no idea what it is, what it takes to beat Donald Trump. I, I think that we're all just sort of, you know, hoping that whoever it is that gets the nomination has some, you know, combination of talent and skill that will figure that out. Um, I think you're right about Biden thinking that being aggressive is something that sort of speaks to vigor, right? I mean, it makes him feel, look, look more vigorous. That was why he was yelling at that guy. That's why he went on the no malarkey tour through <laughs> Iowa, you know. Right. He's, he was trying to, to, to deal with that. And I, I actually felt like he did fine in the debate um, 
last night, and he had, you know, he had a couple of, of really good lines that I think are going to appeal to the same people that David was just talking about, whom Buttigieg is appealing to. When he said, you know, they said, well, you know, you, and he needed to be confronted with this, you said that the Republicans are going to have an epiphany, which is one of the most fatuous things I've ever heard, and he did say that. And his answer this time was, hey, nobody has a right to be more angry with Republicans than me for what they've done to my, me and my son and my family. True. And, of course, when, when Biden says that, there's actual, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. some meaning behind it. And he said, but... You know, he had something to the effect of, look, we're, you know, we're going to have to deal with these people whether we like it or not. And he's right about that. You know, Republicans are not going to just vaporize after the election. They are going to exist, and they're going to use every tool in their toolbox to try and stop whatever this, you know, whatever the agenda of a Democratic president is, even if they're in the minority. And by the way, I'll just remind people, they're very skilled as 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 a minority. They're mm-hmm. really good at using those tools to stop whatever's going on. So... Biden has a point in that, and he makes, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more, you know, lean toward the, you know, let's go for the, for the full-on, you, know, you know, reform agenda mm-hmm. that, that Warren has, yep. because I think that's going to be required. But I get why people would find that reassuring, that he's not, you know, that he's saying, look, you know, let's, let's, let's not talk, have any more malarkey here, you know, yeah. let's, let's, let's deal with reality. And I thought he did that, he did that very well. And, you know, he's... A guy who love him or hate him, uh, you know, I am because I'm dead inside. Have no, <laughs> I am not <laughs> drawn to people who are real touchy feely, and you know, this is all you yeah. know. But there are a lot of people who really like that about him, well, and he's good at it. And and he didn't have to end every comment with, and if you don't believe me, I'll knock your block off. See. <laughs> Uh, before we get to a break here, uh, David Ferris, uh, throughout all of this, and and this is a race where. You know, if anybody tells you how it's going to come out, they're they're lying. And I'm talking about just about the Democratic primary. This could go any number of directions. Uh, 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 but nonetheless, Joe Biden has been sitting on top of the pack by and large for the entire time. He continues to sit on top of the pack, it seems. How do you explain that? Uh, and uh, very quickly, so we can get to a break and come back and get some of the specifics. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I think Biden has a, a lasting appeal to a to a big enough segment of the primary electorate that he's been able to stay um, on top. I also think a big factor here is that no one has been able to figure out how to attack him effectively without doing more damage to themselves in the process. Mm. You know, I, I, the people that have come have come hardest at Biden have been Kamala Harris and, and Julian Castro, and that did not work out for either of them. Mm. Um, I think Bernie Sanders has made this this critique about you know his Iraq war vote and the bankruptcy stuff, and that's not really working. Um, and so I think that there's this like there's some um, confusion with the remaining candidates about like how do we approach um, sort of taking it to Joe Biden without destroying ourselves. And I think you saw that last night. It was just nobody really went after Biden. Yep. Um, and as long as no one is going after Biden, I think he's going to continue to float around 25%, 30%. And that makes him the favorite. It does. Uh, and it's kind of remarkable. But then again, I'm dead inside. So uh, <laughs> let me take a quick break Aren't here. We all, oh, yes, yeah. we are. Uh, speaking with David Ferris, Heather Digby Parton, and Desi Doyen, I'm Brad Friedman. Our special coverage of the Loyola Marymount 2020 Democratic presidential debate the sixth one of the year and the last one of the year we'll take a quick break and come back with much more right after this you are listening to the broadcast (laughs) 
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. It's both an honor and disappointment to be the lone candidate of color on the stage tonight. And the question is, why am I the lone candidate of color on this stage? Fewer than 5% of Americans donate to political campaigns. You know what you need to donate to political campaigns? Disposable income. The way we fix it, the way we fix this is we take Martin Luther King's message of a guaranteed minimum income, a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for all Americans. I guarantee if we had a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, I would not be the only candidate of color on this stage tonight. Thank you, Mr. Yang. What do you say to white Americans who are uncomfortable with the idea of becoming a racial minority, even if you don't share their concerns? I say this is America. This is America. Mm-hmm. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Some of the uh, scenes from the Thursday night debate at Loyola Marymount University out here in Los Angeles, the 2020 Democratic presidential debate. I'm speaking with David Ferris, Heather Digby Partner, and of course, uh, Desi Doyen. Um, the uh, first question right out of the block, guys, was uh, from uh, PBS's Judy Woodruff regarding uh, impeachment, which she noted all the candidates on the stage, unlike Tulsi Gabbard, uh, were actually in favor of. Unlike 1974 and President Nixon, congressional Democrats have so far not convinced a strong majority of Americans to support impeachment of President Trump. Why do you think that is, and what can you say or do differently in the coming weeks to persuade more Americans that this is the right thing to do? Now, that was a fair question, and uh, I think all the candidates had a chance to respond, but I don't think any of them actually did as to what they would do to try to convince more Americans. I don't know if there is an answer, but uh, David, David Ferris, would you like to give it a try? Is there anything that a presidential candidate can do at this point to help convince America, or is this something that's up to Congress, really? Um, I don't think there's anything that, that the candidates can do. I will say um, that I, I sort of resent the way that the question was framed. Um, in the, in the, you know, yeah, it's too. like, how can you convince people? It's like, look, a majority of the country, a majority of the country thinks that the president should be impeached and removed from office. Um, and so I, I think that the question should have been asked, you know, like, how could President Trump convince, like, a bare majority of Americans that he should continue in office. You know, mm-hmm. the implication of the question was that Democrats have failed in their in their uh, in their task of of getting the president impeached and removed from office and convincing the public to come along. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that they have succeeded in that task. Um, and that the premise of the question was that they haven't. And so I really think that this is another case um, where I don't understand why the DNC has farmed out their debates um, to these third party actors whose incentives are to make the Democrats look as bad as possible. <laughs> who, who should, if, if, if it's not a third-party actor, uh, who should run these debates, as you see it? The, the, they should run them themselves and invite the networks to come. You know what I mean? And then you get, like, professors and, uh, and activists and, 
you know, people like Addie Barkan to ask the questions rather than people like Tim mm. Alberta, um, whose, whose sole incentive, um, is to have, you know, gotcha moments where they make the Democrats look at that. Uh-huh. Like, this is the one chance that the party has to showcase its national talent in front of a national audience. And what they do is they just, they, they hand it off to Politico, mm. um, which is, you know, I, I like Politico fine under most circumstances, right? But like, I don't want Politico, um, sort of shaping perceptions of my party's primary candidates um, when when we could have control of the whole process. Uh, I see that R- uh, Roosevelt University professor David Ferris would like to hear more professors running the uh, the <laughs> debates. I see how this works. Um, Woodruff then asked uh, Elizabeth Warren about increasing taxes. Uh, to pay for many for her many uh, plans for health care, for wiping out student debt, daycare, universal preschool, and more. She uh, talked about her her 2% wealth tax proposal, not 2%, uh, 2 cent uh, wealth tax proposal. Um, On earnings over $50 million. Correct. And it's something that I think it's a compelling argument. And every single debate, I've pulled it out, and we have never played it once. And so I want to do uh, get her uh, the question and answer uh, from last night, and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Every candidate on the stage has proposed tax increases on the wealthy. <clears throat> but you have especially ambitious plans that, apart from health care, would hike taxes an additional $8 trillion over the decade, the biggest tax increase since World War II. How do you answer top economists who say taxes of this magnitude would stifle growth and investment? Oh, they're just wrong. (laughs) Let's start with a wealth tax. The idea of a two cent tax on the great fortunes in this country, $50 million and above. For two cents, what can we do? We can invest in the rest of America. We can provide universal childcare, early childhood education for every baby in this country age zero to five. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old and raise the wages of every childcare worker and preschool teacher. We can cancel student loan debt. But think about the economic impact of that. You'll leave two cents with the billionaires. They're not eating more pizzas. They're not buying more cars. We invest that 2% in early childhood education and childcare. We can increase productivity in this country, and we can start building this economy from the ground up. That's how we build it in small towns. That's how we build it in rural America, and that's how we build it in urban America, an economy that works Brief answers. not for Wall Street, but that works for Main Brief Street. Brief responses. So, um, Heather Parton, uh, two cents for every uh, every dollar above $50 million. Why is that idea... I, I, you know, I think she she lays it out well. I think it's a good plan. But as soon as she started introducing her plans for taxing rich people, it seems like uh, Americans became scared of her. Americans, by the way, who will almost all of them never have fifty million dollars to be taxed on. Why are um, why is this idea seemingly so scary? To so many Americans, or is it being is it because it's being misrepresented by uh, folks on the right who are really scared of Elizabeth Warren? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on with that. First of all, I had been under the impression that it pulled pretty well, uh, you know, in in isolation that, mm-hmm. that that 
you know, people are presented with that idea, and you go, yeah, sounds good. I mean, why why wouldn't it, right? Who, who's going to have $50 million? I mean, that's a very, very small percentage of the population. Um, but I do think that there has been, um, you know, there, this has been propaganda, you know, perpetrated by the right wing, and, and not just the right wing, frankly. I mean, certainly the, the, the political and financial establishment in this country has promoted the idea that, you know, these rich people are producers and, you know, you don't want to push them too hard because then, then they won't be producing and we'll all suffer, you know. I mean, this has been, this is something that people have sort of, this been, been indoctrinated, uh, in a lot of, in a lot of people's minds over many, many, many years. I mean, we're going back to the 50s with this, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I'm not surprised that people kind of, that when they, when they start to hear some, when they hear some Someone object to that and say, "Oh, it's going to hurt productivity or whatever." That they kind of go, "Ooh, yeah, we wouldn't want that." Oh. That's just sort of reflexive. I also want to point out, I was watching PBS last night when, and after that question was asked, they went to a break, and every one of those people on that panel—I'm talking about the alleged journalists—went <laughs> after her with everything they had. I noticed that, that she too. didn't answer the question, and she was just what? evading and. And they were really very hostile to her for doing that. And, you know, of course, a lot of people like me you were could, watching that. You, you could hear that? You could hear them Yeah, yes. they were talking her? amongst themselves during the break. Yes. So on the, uh, and you mean the commentators, sort of yeah, the, the, the baby pundits that they had on PBS when CNN went to a commercial break. Oh, I, I see. saw that yeah, as yeah. well. Gotcha. Oh, I saw it on PBS, actually. It yeah, well, I was watching, right. I was recording online, so I right. saw them. But, uh, yes, they were talking about how, well, you know, some economists do say that, and they didn't talk at all about the fact that there is zero evidence ever that tax cuts for the rich ever boost the economy. We're watching it unfold as we speak. We exactly. just had the most massive tax cut in history, and it is not showing up to have, have done what they said it was going to do. I mean, look, this is, a, this is just a perennial mm-hmm. argument, which seems so bizarre to me that, that anyone would this. make in this moment when we have Donald Trump out there, you know, having just thrown every bit of a caution to the wind and the Republicans signing off on every gigantic military spending bill out there, right. cutting taxes willy-nilly, and all of them. And, of course, by the way, they're going to be, and, and these people in the media will be helping them start their deficit-mongering the yeah. minute that someone else comes in. Oh, office. of course. It's just, it's just so depressing. Oh, of course they, they will. will. And as long as you brought that up, uh, well, actually... Um, well, yeah. Let me let me jump to this um, because uh, finally, uh, climate, uh, Desi Doyen, you'll be yes. happy to know. Uh, not only did climate change finally make it into the debate, but it, it was a, a longish conversation. It was on several different aspects, and though not right at the top pretty damn close to write it. I think it was the second block uh, after the first break. Yes, it was a full 13 minutes, which is the longest that has ever been spent in any debate, in any presidential debate, ever. And uh, Amy Klobuchar actually had a pretty good line about building a fridge to the next century, which I thought was not bad. (laughs) Not as good as Warren's uh, I'd also be the youngest woman ever inaugurated line, but pretty good. But uh, let me play uh, what Bernie had to say here. He was not happy with the question about uh, the necessity of relocating people from the coast. Would you be willing to pass, uh, you know, federal law to help move people away from the coast to get away from sea level rise and areas that are hit by drought, fire, storms, and so forth. Bernie was not happy with that question, uh, uh, you know, of relocating people, but he pointed to how scientists 
warnings have been too conservative for many years. And I was happy to see that, even while noting, um, and it may have been one of the few, if not only mentions of this, that too much is spent on our war machine. It is not an issue of relocating people in towns. The issue now is whether we save the planet for our children and our grandchildren. What the scientists are telling us is they have underestimated the threat and severity of climate change. You're talking about the Paris Agreement, that's fine. Ain't enough. We have got to, and I've introduced legislation to do this, declare a national emergency. The United States has got to lead the world. And maybe, just maybe, instead of spending 1.8 trillion a year globally on weapons of destruction, maybe an American president i.e. Bernie Sanders, can lead the world. (laughs) Instead of spending money to kill each other, maybe we pool our resources and fight our common enemy, which is climate change. Thank you, Senator Sanders. Uh, good answer, I thought. Uh, yes. But, yeah, go they ahead. All, I think yeah, they all definitely. had very good answers on this. And really, you know, they're different policies, just to point out that all of them support the Green New Deal framework for climate legislation. They all support some kind of price on carbon, a carbon tax or other mechanism. So they have varying degrees in their own policies that are very specific and are up online. But what I thought was really good about this, about the questions that were asked and the answers, was that they showed, each of them showed that they really do understand the problems. Mm. They really do understand the speed and the scope of how we are going to have to deal with this. And David uh, Ferris, can a Democrat in America in 2020 win the presidency actually calling for reducing spending on our war machine? Donald Trump actually sort of suggested as much when he was running, but then he did the opposite. But can a Democrat get away with that the way Bernie Sanders was suggesting there? I absolutely think they can, yeah. I mean, I think that there's way too much fear um, out there in, in the Democratic Party about sort of having a revision of our, our national security policy. Um, I don't think there's any polling to suggest that, that, that the general public wants to spend $708 billion a year on, on defense. Um, I think that there is a great case to be made for, for cutting down waste and, and bloat in the defense budget. Um, and I think that there's uh, a receptive audience out there for people who, who want to hear people talking about um, repositioning some of our spending um, from defense to other priorities, particularly priorities at home. Um, it, it brings me back to the framing of the question to Elizabeth Warren about you know her spending. When they do this thing where they add up the cost over, over a decade, you know, like this would cost $8 trillion or $20 trillion over a decade. Um, and nobody, nobody ever adds up the defense budget mm. over the course of a decade right. and says, well, that, right, that's actually eight or nine or ten trillion dollars over mm-hmm. the course of a decade, right? Um, and so I think the Democrats are still a little bit afraid of their own shadow on, on defense spending. Um, of course, people don't want to hear, you know, we, we, you know, we want to eliminate the Army or the Navy or something, but I think that people are receptive to the idea that we could carefully rebalance resources um, from defense spending to other priorities. Um, and that's where I think that Sanders and Warren really separate themselves from the other candidates uh, in terms of having a foreign policy vision and a foreign policy uh, uh, plan that's a little bit different from from the other Democrats who I think, like Buttigieg in particular and Biden, are kind of stuck in this like 2003 mm-hmm. uh, mindset where we're afraid of of uh, you know the, the George W. Bush monster 
um, haranguing <laughs> us before the midterms. You, right. you know what I mean? It's like, yes. uh, like those days are over. You know, like people have different ideas about how we should spend our money now. And I, I don't think that message has gotten to sort of mainstream Democrats. Yet. I hope it does soon, and I hope, and I, I think you're absolutely right about the idea of people being ready to consider different ways of distributing our taxpayer money. Um, but one thing that I do want to point out about this specific uh, debate question, this is probably the first time that most Americans have heard about even the concept of having to relocate certain mm. areas, certain neighborhoods, mm. certain cities. I mean, yeah. right now the projections yeah. are Miami is not going to make it to the end of the century. People need to hear this. Especially people in Miami, yeah. by the way. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. let's. Uh, could, could I just add one thing yeah, to that? Sure, because I think I think what David said was really important about the reorientation of uh, American foreign policy, and it's not just around the budget. Uh, it's a it, we are in a period that the post Cold War order has is dissolving and may be dissolved already. I mean, Donald Trump has, you know, put it into overdrive, but mm-hmm. it was happening anyway. And, you know, the, these institutions that were created are, are, you know, they're falling apart. You know, things like NATO and, and you know, the, the trade being a certain kind of bulwark against aggression by, you know, countries like China, all of that sort of thing is just, it's no longer viable. And so what has to happen, you know, what we're in now is this just chaos and, and really bad things can come out of that. And, you know, I don't mean to underrate the idea of national security, because it's real. There are enemies out there. There are people out there that, that could create a tremendous amount of problems. But there's no thinking, as far as I can tell, generally speaking, in either party, about how we're going to reorient that. I mean, the closest that I've seen mm-hmm. so far in this race has been from Bernie Sanders. And I don't think people normally think of him as being a foreign policy guy, but he has some excellent advisors mm-hmm. and some people who are really thinking that through. So I just want to throw that out there. We don't talk very much about it uh, in, in these in these debates, yeah. but I, I think it's really, really important because, uh, you know, we're, we're in a period of international chaos. We, we may not know it, but we are. Yeah, and I think, and I'm glad you did, and it what it means is uh, I was going to play a, a, some uh, a clip from Biden here that I don't have time for now, but which is fine because Sorry. it was no 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 that, because Biden and Buttigieg were both sort of banging the tough guy war talk I thought with uh, with China yeah, for some reason uh, and in both cases it seemed un- you know incredibly unrealistic Buttigieg was talking about isolating them economically and I thought you know does has he looked around his house lately to see how many things are in it that are made <laughs> in China what is he thinking and then Biden was talking about moving. What was it? Two thirds of the warships over towards uh, China to let them know that we're a war footing. A war footing, like we're actually going to go to military war with China, much less an economic war. Um, yeah, and that seems like very old thinking. So I'm I'm glad both of you guys made that point and pointed out that uh, Bernie Sanders was actually happy to say. We need to stop this madness and put our resources to what actually matters, like saving the goddamn planet. Yes. Quick break, and we're back with our uh, final segment with David Ferris and Heather Digby-Parton on our special broadcast coverage of the um, the last debate, the last Democratic debate of the uh, 2019 school year. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Don't go away.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We have a president who has sold out the working families of this country. We need to restore the integrity of the presidency, of the office of the presidency. There's something else going on here, and it is a decency check. As Americans, we're going to come together to stand up for the original values, freedom, equality, justice, teamwork. We have to stop confusing economic value and human value. This is our chance as a country to change the course of this nation for the better. What's clearly on the stage in 2020 is how we are going to run against the most corrupt president in living history. We need a new vision which brings our people together around an agenda that works for all, not the Trump vision of dividing us up to benefit the billionaire class. That's my vision. A long December, and there's reason to believe Maybe this year will be better than the last Good Lord, I hope so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our last few minutes here with David Ferris and Heather Digby-Parton uh, on the um, on the uh, the last uh, Democratic debate of the year. Guys, we've got just another minute or two here. There will be another debate mid-January, as I understand it. But i got to say, uh, short of the pre-election poll numbers uh, being totally wrong, uh, they right now tell us it's going to be Joe Biden one way or another. Uh, but part of that, aside from that, I've never seen a race that could go in so many different possible directions. And I'm still not uh, convinced uh, that any one of them is any particularly more equipped than any other to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, very quickly from each of you, is there anything uh, that you would like to see from any one or more of the candidates than you have seen to date before voting begins just a few weeks from today? We'll start with you, David Ferris. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think that we, those of us who pay very close attention to this have have seen uh, just about all we need to see from everyone. Um, I, I, I do want to say before we end tonight that I thought Amy Klobuchar had a great night last night. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and while I am sort of Warren and Sanders sort of significantly more than these other candidates, if I had to pick a moderate that I would like to see square off against President Trump, it would be, it would be her. Hmm. Um, by by a wide margin, um, I think that she's uh, she's very savvy. She's funny. Um, and I, I can't tell you how seldomly people actually make me laugh in these debates. But she made me <laughs> laugh with that quote about the with the you know the Senate at the nightclub. If there were two thousand guys and fifty women, um, <laughs> like she really she has some real political skill. You know she's um, she's more coherent than Biden, and she has more experience than Buttigieg. Um, and so, if there's anything I would like to see from the candidates, <laughs> it would be like for Klobuchar to rise and for mm. Buttigieg and Biden to, to to fade away, and to have a clear choice between a progressive uh, and Klobuchar, who is someone that I could live with as the as the nominee, um, versus I think Biden and Buttigieg, who I would be more disappointed to have to turn out for 
Although, of course, I would do it. Star <laughs> Wars, The Rise of Klobuchar, worst Star Wars movie ever. Uh, <laughs> Heather, uh, your uh, last thoughts or anything uh, else that you would like to see uh, from either of these candidates, from any of these candidates? Well, you know, I, I agree with David. I mean, I think I've, I've been watching them closely for a long time, including in this campaign, and I think I've seen everything I need to see from them. Um, and I agree about Klobuchar as well. I thought she had a really good night. And, and I think that one of the things that if all of them need to do, and some do better than others, is you have to find a way to sort of tie in this big policy agenda that they have with values. And by that, I'm not just saying what, you know, Warren talks about, you know, mommy and daddy, you know, get, not having to go to a, you know, a second job and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's true, too. But there's a sort of a more... Um, kind of values-laden rhetoric that I think they can deploy effectively in this time of Trumpism, which is just kind of crude, bullying, whining, mm -hmm. you know, kind of adolescent, you know, bad adolescent male behavior is essentially what we're dealing yeah. with. So I would like to see a little bit more of that, just, you know, try to tap into something a little bit more, uh, a little bit bigger on the values side and um, kind of... Uh, to to go with their big policy agenda. Gotcha. Yeah, and you know what? I'll just close out real fast. What Digby said. There you go. See, <laughs> yeah, that always works. Exactly. Uh, right. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, what Digby says can be found at salon.com and Digby's blog.blogspot.com. You can also find out what Digby says on the Twitters at Digby56. Heather Digby Parton, thank you as ever for joining us. David Ferris, you can find his work, uh, which is just always uh, smart and insightful and teaches me something new at theweek.com. You can find him on Twitter at David M. Ferris and buy his book for Christmas. It's called It's Time to Fight Dirty. Uh, thanks, David Ferris. Greatly appreciate it. Always great to be here, Brad. And thank you, Heather. And, of course, thanks to Desi Doyen. Yep. Thank you very much our producer, and thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free, along with any other show at bradblog.com. That's free, and that's all thanks to those of you who help us out by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Our program is 100% listener-supported, uh, and we'd like to keep our archives uh, free for all as long as we can, and we can't do it without your help. Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, where you may or may not see me over the next week or two as we stand down here for some much needed uh, uh, downtime, recharge our batteries, so to speak. But never fear, we will have new Bradcast for you in the days ahead. A sort of a mix of Nicole Sandler will be in for us, uh, along with an occasional rebroadcasts am i right oh yes okay very good we will all look forward to that and we will see you in the new year until then i'm brad friedman good luck world <laughs> <laughs>